Alright, let's get started. I really like how anytime anybody sees me in the parking lot on Sunday morning, they go, oh good, I'm not late. <laughs> You're not late as long as you beat the teacher. I also was thinking this morning, well, there are multiple things I like about teaching Sunday school, but one thing I like teaching uh, this class versus the other classes I've been teaching this semester at college is I have no grading for this class. <laughs> I teach for free. They pay me to grade and go to meetings. All right. Uh, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, um, we'll be continuing on this morning into the prophecy of Habakkuk. If you have a cart Bible, sorry, that's what we need to call them. Doesn't that sound really racy? Cart Bible, you know, they're fast. Uh, if you have uh, one of the ESVs in the back, Habakkuk's on page 785. And before we begin, let me uh, open us with a word of prayer. Oh, gracious God, we do thank you for this day and this privilege that we have, that we can rest from our worldly labors and find our rest in Jesus Christ and in his finished work on the cross for us. We thank you for this day of joy and gladness and that we can come and meet your living word in the words of your servants, the prophets. Lord God, uh, we ask that you would instruct us this morning uh, through the words of each other and through the words of your Holy Spirit in our midst. Truly, Lord God, uh, we are gathered in this place and you have gathered with us. And you've gathered to comfort us, to instruct us, to enable us to glorify you with all our works and words. We ask that uh, you would lift our thoughts to heaven this morning as we consider uh, the words of the prophet and give us insight into how to live in the world around us. For like the prophet, Lord God, um, the Knowing who you are raises questions about uh, the things that go on in our world and how, how we handle them, both from a physical standpoint, but also from an intellectual standpoint and from a spiritual standpoint. And most of all, from a standpoint of our relationship with you, the living God. Strengthen us now by your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Just to, to recap before we uh, uh, read um, the first chapter of Habakkuk again, just to go over what we did last week. Last week we looked at, uh, just sort of briefly, who this obscure prophet Habakkuk uh, really is. And uh, considering the nature, he doesn't tell us a lot about himself. And more particularly important, rather than figuring out who Habakkuk is, is figuring out what the context the appropriate context for this prophecy. And we noticed last week, starting off with the um, prophecy, we noticed uh, the prophecy begins with this complaint of Habakkuk. And specifically, he asked God two questions. How long would the evil, injustice, violence, suffering continue to go on in the land of Judah? And why righteous people 
like himself, had to watch these things take place. Did God see this going on in Judah? And in the beginning, we had looked at Habakkuk's complaint, and then we had turned to the beginning of the Lord's response, and we had really focused on verse 5, the beginning of this God's answer. And we see that God addresses not just Habakkuk personally, but the people in plural and encourages them to look beyond their present evil and to see the amazing things that are going on around them. It's in a way we talked about how God is broadening Habakkuk's expanse, broadening his vision to see God's actions on a wider scale of human space and history. So, in a sense, God um, answered Habakkuk's questions. Habakkuk had asked how long, and the Lord promptly answered, saying, very suddenly and very soon. Habakkuk had asked, why is not justice upheld and violence punished? And the Lord answered, my impartial justice shall bring awesome vengeance upon my own people. So this week we're going to look, um, focus more on this description. We touched on a little, but I want to focus on this description that God gives of the instruments of his justice, the Chaldeans, and how that description of these Chaldeans prompts Habakkuk's second complaint. So let me read for us. I'll read the entirety of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong... Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. 
He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So, thinking about um, uh, this description that God gives there in um, verses 6 through 11 of these Chaldeans, what are some of the specific traits that uh, Habakkuk um, gives us of this uh, people that God is raising up. So what are some of the specifics? Ruthless? In what way? So, so let's point to, to verses and words here that we see them. So ruthless, where do you see that, Ron? Verse 6. Yep, bitter, hasty nation um, who through, march through the breadth of the earth to see dwellings not their own. What else? Swift to devour. Yeah, and um, uh, you know that that devouring language. Uh, and, hmm? Coming for violence. Uh, yeah, it's you know there's no question why they're here. <laughs> You know, it's not like, oh, y'all came from a long distance, you need something to drink, you're on business, negotiate. No. <laughs> one purpose, well, one thing they're here for. So they're from here for violence. Andy? Yeah, you see eagles and hawks up circling around. Oh, aren't those pretty? You see vultures. <laughs> Maybe not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, there's there's food to be had, and vultures are ready to swift down and take swoop down and take it swiftly. What else do we see about um, these people? And I have to admit, I can't couldn't get over all week of Rob's description of them. You know how delightfully. Um, how God sort of uh, has created this delightful, horrible image of these people. They are a law unto themselves. Yeah, they're a law unto themselves. Mary had um, uh, brought that point out last week, that their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. So they have a certain measure of, of justice and rationality, but it's derived from them, their own standards. Not, they're not going to judge Israel based on the standards of the living God. Yeah, notice how um, we're given sort of uh, in these this um, imagery of, of descriptive imagery of these fighting forces. We also get a sense of their techniques. You know, we we get a sense of their swiftness. But we also get a sense they know how to conduct siege warfare. Um, you build up a fortress, they'll pile up earth, go right over the walls and take it. Um, 
Yeah, so they're engineers. Um, you know, they've mastered both the um, swift, you know, sort of blitzkrieg type campaign, lightning war, with this rapid horses and horsemen. But, you know, so you think, okay, we'll just climb up into our citadel. They'll pass by. No, <laughs> they can bring those down too. Yeah, and, it, and to think it's for a particular purpose. And I think, you know, um, we'll see. That's one of the things Habakkuk struggles with because God seems to be delighting a little too much <laughs> for Habakkuk in this instrument. Yes, so these are the Chaldeans are the um, the new Babylonians. So it's usually the Neo-Babylonians that come to the fore under, good grief, I'm going to forget, completely butcher the guy's name, Nabopolassar, I think that's right, um, rises up this um, new Babylonian empire right at the end of the... Um, Right at the end of the seventh century. Scratching. You're scratching. Okay, you bid. You didn't know it. So, Bill. If they're captives, though, like sand, they're very successful in their pursuits. Yeah, we think of sand as you know. Think of all the times uh, the Bible uses sand. Uh, you know, using it as this um, thing that can't be numbered. Yeah, and then to think of the promise of Abraham. And I think Habakkuk is making a purposeful allusion here. You know, Abraham's descendants, they're going to be like the sands of the seashore. These Chaldeans are going to, you know, gather up the sand in their nets. And <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, they're, they're going um, throughout. They're taking... Um, they're rapacious, they're thorough. Pretty brutal description we're given here. Sorry, allergies. It's not the swine flu. <laughs> the first three rows are all sliding back. Does he have it? Yeah, look how at that verse 10, they scoff. They, they scoff at kings, rulers, <laughs> they laugh, they laugh at every fortress. So it's, they don't respect anyone's power and authority because they are so, um, yeah, they, they're a law unto themselves again. No one can, can rule them. Yeah, and we see some of that, um, you know, uh, that, you know, he describes them, that bitter and hasty nation. Um, and that's one thing about this Neo-Babylonian empire, even though we're given this description of, of how scary 
and how strong they are. They're very short-lived, and part of that short-livedness is their inability to to stay cohesive themselves. Yeah, the the same kind of swiftness, ruthlessness, um, and and notice there there is in, in this picture we we see there is no sort of possible defense. They're so fast you can't run away from them. They're so powerful you climb up into your cities which um, you think are completely impenetrable, and they'll take those too. Yeah, each one is is more degraded, but each one's also stronger, um, and that again is part of the the irony that's going to be um, tripping Habakkuk up. Um, you know, here, yes, these are your righteous judges you're bringing on us. They're really strong, but they're also really, really wicked. And notice the irony in verse 11, uh, or you know, the the parry. We start off with verse 6, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. So it's very clear that, that these people are God's instrument. That he's the one bringing them into the land of Judah. But then in verse 11, uh, he, he closes, the, the God's response closes with, These are guilty men whose own might is their God. So it's this irony that God's instrument here doesn't even recognize him as God. So he's using them uh, and they have no uh, concept that um, their power and authority derive from God. They believe it derives from themselves. Yeah, when you're there, you don't acknowledge the authority of God. And you become a god in your own eyes. Um, and, and thinking in, in these terms, um, I always think of Calvin talks about um, yeah, the sense of divine we all have. And you know, even though we um, have this innate sense there is a god, we use that and create gods in our own images. You know, we take that natural... Uh, theology and build that's where idolatry comes from we have a sense that there is a God out there and in our natural constructions we make an idol of it alright so here we've given this this picture of uh, these um, violent uh, militarily unstoppable rapacious people that God has raised up to judge Judah. Which leads to Habakkuk's response in verses 12 through the beginning of of chapter 2. And his response, so God's answered his, his first queries, but God's answers raised some new issues for Habakkuk. 
And looking at verse, um, verse 12, we see Habakkuk first prefacing his second complaint. So how does he preface his second problem? Yeah, and what picture, you're absolutely right. He starts with God's character, um, laying out who God by nature is. And what does he tell us about the character of God here in verse 12? It's transcendent over time. It seems right up front he's expressing faith and confidence because the very first verse there. Yeah, he's starting with this. It's a character of God, and it's it's a character of Habakkuk's God, whom he puts his trust and confidence. And as we encounter the second complaint, we need to um, consider it in light of that. This isn't an expression of. Um, Doubting God's character, doubting whether God's good or not, it's a question that arises out of that. It's the question of faith that he's struggling with. And this is where you've just put your finger on translation problem. Does anybody have something different for we shall not die there? Or maybe not. Maybe all. Um, it's verse 12 there's a, a little line at the end or right in the middle really of verse 12 are you not from everlasting O Lord my God my Holy One we shall not die think I have nothing should have say I should have brought my alternate some uh, people translate that you shall not die so being a statement of God's immortality. Um, yeah, which does fit a little better with, because that we shall not die sort of sticks out. Yeah. But, um, so that we shall not die... Uh, again, we, we just have to, we can either see it as this um, sense of you know, Habakkuk expressing confidence that God is going to keep and preserve them, or it, as a you know, further statement that God is immortal, that God is not one who's subject to death. Either one. What else are we told about God's character here? So we've got this sort of everlasting, um, he transcends time, he's someone who Habakkuk puts his faith in and continues to trust in. What else are we told about the character of God? Yeah, that God is the one who, um, who is sovereign in judgment. Um, and notice there at the end of verse 12, O Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Yep, you're right. You, you know, we deserve it. You're sending it. 
Um, you know, he's a, he's gotten the first. Uh, it's the way he's accepted God's first response. But and we'll see the the. His problem comes out of that response as well. So it's sort of it's answered one set of Habakkuk's questions, but it's created a whole new question for him. Uh, I think when you see the word reproof, I'm not thinking, I'm thinking in terms of uh, discipline. God is not really just judging them to destroy them, but to send them a message to, uh, for them to try to change, to understand what they've done wrong. Yeah, that is chastisement. It's for their good and correction. It's uh, it's not for um, you know it's not complete and total destruction. Which again, maybe that fits with the you know translating that we shall not die. Um, sort of um, knowing we're going to suffer these things, yet you're still our God and you're still going to. This is for our good. Certain states that I'm definitely full of the Department of Corrections. Yeah, not the uh, <laughs> not the correction. Uh. I did have another question though about the style. This, is this he is uh, a weird kind of talk not to uh, question God. Okay. Now about you know, sometimes why is he just a, a request for information? Well, it's not that he's on thin ground. He's, uh, we talked about this some last week. He's struggling with this knowing who God is and what God has, the purposes that God set forth, and not seeing it, not being able to see it right now in his current existence. He has the eternal realities that he knows. Yet, he knows not all things are the way they should be. He's in this moment. We can be wider. So, so it is. You're, you're right, absolutely right. There is a way we can sort of uh, read questions like this as being um, uh, accusations of God and not coming from a position of faith. But uh, I think um, we also see examples in scriptures where we do see people who, from a position of faith, can sort of enter into this dialogue of God for the purpose of. Um, uh, you know, understanding a little more how to live in this moment, um, and you know sometimes you get uh, you know notice even at the end that he's he's expecting a little bit of a smackdown <laughs> in the first verse of chapter two. You know I'm going to sit here and wait to see how you're going to come and rebuke me <laughs> for what I just said. So he, you know, he realizes he's he's treading <laughs> into uh, on ground angels fear to go. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he he knows he's he's pushing the boundaries a little bit, um, and so he's waiting for that rebuke. But it's the way he knows also from the proverbs that a rebuke from the Lord is the path of wisdom. So it's you know even if he's 
he gets smacked down and God says that's not for you to know he learns from it so by asking it's not the asking the question itself it's you know what answer does uh, or what he does with the answer that God gives him this is actually kind of informative as, as to how to interact with God during times like this. It's, it's always dangerous to, to kind of make a theological point looking at what somebody else is doing, or it can be dangerous. But this appears to be the way that people who are who they are recognize that they have a struggle, yet recognize that God is God, approach Him with humility, knowing that you're. Even if, even if you don't say what's on your heart when you're praying to God, God knows what's on our hearts. He knows what's in our inmost being. And so there's a temperance here. He's not cursing God. He's not, he's not being openly rebellious against God. He's, he's just he's asking this question, saying, why? Because that's, from, from his perspective, that's, that's all that he can see. That's all that he can understand. And so he's being who he is, yet he's recognizing his place before God. And so, like we see in chapter 2, he, he, he's, he's waiting for the whirlwind to come because he knows that there's something he's not getting here. So, it, this is a, I, I think, an informative way on, on how we, as God's people, can come before him when we have the tough questions about someone who we know is going through a terrible time or death or we ourselves are going through difficulty. Just there's an honesty about it, yet a sense of God's superintending control over the situation. Yeah, it's the it's acknowledging that we struggle with these things. Um, uh, Augustine um, sort of phrased it this way, it's our faith in God that leads to doubts and we struggle with those doubts and that leads us to deeper faith and so our faith leads to doubt and then doubt brings us back deeper into the faith it's that sort of um, but by acknowledging the struggle and and entering into using that as a chance to deepen our relationship with God um, by being open about um, wrestling with the issue instead of sort of just giving an answer oh I'll trust in you okay but deep down sort of going I'm not really sure what God's doing here being open about you know I'm wrestling I'm having trouble with this one God Um, I'm I'm having uh, I, I know who you are I know who you're based on your character but I'm having a hard time at this moment so using that coming from, and again, notice how his complaint is going to come out of this knowing who the character of God is. That's the source of the, the problem is not from wondering, well, who is this God out there? and What's he doing? It's, I know who you are. You're from everlasting. I know you're holy. I know you're immortal. I know you're sovereign. I know these people are coming from, from you. But then the question becomes, um, how can the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? How can these horrible Chaldeans destroy, swallow up, devour your holy people Israel? So it's, you know, you're sovereign and you're control, but that leads to the second question of 
how can you ordain this wonderfully wicked instrument that you're going to employ against people, against your covenant people? So this is Habakkuk is right coming right at the end of the kingdom of Judah. So this is um, right near the end. We just had the last righteous king of Judah, and now um, we've had two of his wicked sons on the throne. And the son that's on the throne now is the son that's going to to be ruling when the Babylonians come and conquer Jerusalem. So he is right at the end of the kingdom of Judah. Uh, yeah, Jehoiakim. So his second complaint is, how can a holy, all-powerful God allow the wicked to swallow up the righteous? So it's and it's you know it's it's the way that God's actions in using these people seem to violate God's character. You know, he's a holy God. How can he use these unholy people? And it's how can God bring the the God who's made promises to Abraham and Moses and to David bring complete devastation politically to his people and have them dragged off into captivity? So it's it's a problem coming from who God is and a problem not seeing how this fits with what God's promised. So do we face the issue of this second complaint of Habakkuk? And we'll wait. When you see the wicked prosper, when you see the righteous suffer, it raises the question, what's what's going on? Mary. swept up in the net too it's the way of, uh, I'll, I'll never forget it's one of those times that you have like I have memory burn so I have memory burn I was sitting at, in First Pres in Jackson and Ralph Davis was preaching and I was sort of on the side so I, I had him in profile and First Pres they 
built a new sanctuary, so I'm sure it's different now, but it used to have the pulpit on the side. And so, you know, I was on his side, so he's like right up there in front of me, and I see him like he's got really long arms. And I thought he's like, I always, with him, I always thought he needed like a tether to sort of like keep him from going over the edge. So, um, but he was just like way out and he was wrestling with this very question, why do good, or why do bad things happen to good people? And he leaned way out and he said, because there are no good people. <laughs> you know, it, the, the way the, the, the question assumes something about humanity um, that isn't really true, um, which, you know, and, Part of Habakkuk's question, and we'll see this particularly next week, is this reorientation of what it means to be righteous. Um, and we, we're at a key period here with Habakkuk, and we saw this actually with how Paul used Habakkuk in Acts last week in, in redemptive history of shifting this understanding, being righteous doesn't mean being a part of the physical state of Judah being righteous means to have a certain relationship with God to be righteous is the one who has faith Um, not because they're a member of Judah not because of their works they've done that they've in terms of, of human measurements they're better than people over here it's that a reorientation of what our standard of righteousness is Mark. In um, some of our congregations in the past, we've come across and have fallen into believing that if Christians would just rise up and really work within the system of politics, we can change things. Particularly, there were some older just, you know, the culture shift that they've seen in their 90 some years is just, you know, mind boggling when they would get depressed and, and they would. Giving Jerry letters, you've got to rise up as a pastor and lead us to vote this way and do this and do that. And we could see that they were just getting overwhelmed by feeling like the other side was winning and we weren't doing what we needed to do to change things politically. Yeah, and you can see that in um, Habakkuk's context. You know, he, he, you know, just two kings ago. They had, had a, you know, things were going well. Josiah, he's bringing about reforms. He dies. We get his sons. You know, it, so it's just sort of, well, only if we, you know, you give us a righteous king again, then maybe things will be all better. And it's the way God's trying, I think, trying to pull him out of that. Stop thinking about how you can make things better, sphere, and and to think about your relationship with me. Um, you know, it's the way. Even with these questions, we're being pointed to this key verse, and you know, to go ahead and sort of preview next week. Um, Behold, you know, contrasting the proud, behold, the soul is puffed up; it's not upright with him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Um, so, you know. The way that this question can sort of, the questions Habakkuk's asking can lead to a statement of pride. Look, we're righteous people. Why are this stuff happening to us? And, you know, you know, if we're in control, we would make everything right. Nope. <laughs> yeah, in a sense. Um, well, and he's asking for a certain sort of political reformation. Um, 
again, this sort of, um, you know, if we only had the right people in control, things would all be better kind of idea. Rather than, he, he, you know, it's the way Habakkuk's trying to deal with those external questions. And we see in this book that um, God is trying to move from those externals to the heart. And that's sort of the same, again, to sort of think of how um, Paul's not just quoting random words from Habakkuk. You see Paul at a similar moment there in Acts, quoting these verses from Habakkuk at a moment where our conception of, of who the people of God, uh, who are the people of God, is moving from the people of Israel to those who live by faith, Jew and Gentile alike. Um, so it's that... You know, in a very similar way, it's this enormous shift that's taking place. Yeah, it's at that moment. You know, how do we understand um, what's going on? And to go back to Chris's thing, you know, it's acknowledging the struggle. Um, yeah, I want to believe, but how on earth could that? Happen, take place. Yeah, they get politically powerful and then they end up doing things. No, uh, this misconception. Not really ruler. Um, so they have a governing council, and he was their theological advisor. So he didn't actually wield any political power in of himself. I guess the one thing that I think of is uh, we have this tendency to think of a grading system. You know, those that are evil, uh, more evil than us, and therefore they deserve a
and yet they sinned just as previously as uh, you know, these powerful nations. Yeah, that the again that doing away with this idea that there are no good people, but to, as you um, you know, brought us to to bring us to the one the one time in human history where a truly righteous man suffered completely unjustly the cross um, to to see that point where um, the only person who has ever um, could ask this question of why and totally be justified in it. You know, that question that Jesus uh, cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, he's asking this same question. Why have you forsaken your righteous one? Um, Why at this moment is evil winning? But we know the why... Because evil doesn't win. It's at that moment of suffering that um, uh, God wins. Um, you know, and so when we think about the question, you know, that's where we need to go with it. We need to go with it to the cross because that is where our only hope lies, and that's where our only answer lies. And it's the the deepest and hardest point uh, of the question for us because here's the only time. That a truly righteous man has suffered uh, unjustly, suffered the punishment of of all his people on his head, where he incurred none of that guilt personally himself. It's at the cross where that point of God's complete and total justice meets his total love for his people. And that becomes the mind-blowing thing for us. Not this question of why does um, bad things happen to good people? Why are so much evil happening in the world? It's why did Christ suffer and die on the cross for people like me? Well, that's actually a really nice way to end the class, at least I think. Um, and I'm sure you have more questions uh, about this um, this issue of, of of evil and good and how they're fitting together in God's plan. And we'll we'll keep wrestling because this is one of the things the Book of Habakkuk wrestles with is this problem of God's use, the holy God's use of evil instruments and the redemptive purposes of that. And so we'll continue on with the um, end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 when we move from Habakkuk's complaint to God's second response to him. Uh, But let me close us with a word of prayer. Oh gracious God, uh, we have gathered here today because of our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His redemptive work on the cross for us. But we confess, Lord God, that our trust in You and our beliefs in Your power and Your sovereignty and Your holiness and Your righteousness and Your goodness and love uh, often confuse us and create doubts in our lives. Lord God, we ask that You would use these, even these doubts uh, uh, redemptively, that you would sanctify us by them and that you would use our questions, our struggles, 
are wrestling with um, with your existence and your purposes in our world around us to deepen our faith, to deepen our wisdom and understanding and trust in you. Because you, Lord God, are the one, the only one in whom we can put our trust. You are our rock and strong place from which we cannot be moved. We ask now that you would uh, even even in the coming minutes, be preparing us to hear your word proclaimed once again, that you would continue to sharpen our faith, equip us to live in this world, and most of all, prepare us to meet our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to live eternally with him. In his name we pray. Amen.